singing. Uh, you may be seated. Let me adjust this. And uh, hey, want to welcome all of you here to worship again today. It's the second week that we've been physically uh, back together, and it really feels good. Yep, there you go. <laughs> So uh, Cactus, welcome in Northridge and Chapel as well. And then certainly for those of you uh, with us online, we've been in a series here on unity and we're learning that no matter you know, what setting or we're gonna learn today, even though we express it differently, we're still one body in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is an extremely critical series for our church in these times. There's a <clears throat> lot of disunity out there today. It's hard to miss it. And, and it, it infects the church. And so last week we talked about the extent of our unity and the fact that our unity is not found anywhere else but in Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, the Bible, as well as our shared love for each other. So uh, our unity is solid. And then this week we're talking about the expressions of our unity. It's really the hard work. I'll prepare you. Uh, last week was super important. If you didn't hear it, you must because it sets the table for this week. But it's one thing to agree and the importance of unity and even where it's found, it's another thing to then work out how we express our unity together, uh, especially here in the 21st century. But you're gonna see today the Bible is gonna be an, an incredible help to us as it always is. So uh, enough introduction, let's bow and pray. We got a lot of work to do in the word today. You're gonna be very encouraged, I think, with where God is leading us as a church. Father, I do thank you for our gathered times of worship. Uh, Lord, it's such interesting uh, times we live in with this pandemic and so much else going on around us. Father, we wanna keep our sights, keep our focus uh, squarely upon you, upon your son Jesus, your Holy Spirit who fills us, the love that we have for each other, the church. Lord, these are the things that we want to grab our attention and to become that which unifies us. And so I pray that as we turn to your word once again now, after having set up our time through worship of you, I pray that you'd speak to us, each of us individually. And then if I ever prayed this, Lord, I pray today, collectively as a whole, speak to us about this idea of expressing our unity as you want us to. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in over 30 years of preaching, I don't think I have ever preached back-to-back -back messages on one single verse in the Bible. I was actually looking at my archives this week thinking, have I ever done something that crazy? One verse, spending two entire weekends on it. It shouldn't surprise us that this can and should be done. The Bible, as we know, is God's word. It's his heart and his mind to us. And so think about it. We could probably spend more than just two weeks, two months, two years, two decades, even a lifetime plumbing the depths of quite a few individual verses in the Bible. And certainly the passage that we began looking at last week is one of the most poignant, profound, and potentially life-changing passages in all of the Bible. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, and it has everything to do with you and me today and all that's going on around us. And here is what it says. It says, for he himself, referring to Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Oh. 
Now, last week we focused on the first part of this series where it says he himself is our peace who made both groups one. And we noted that in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, as well as in the work of Jesus, what he came to do on the cross, we now have peace with God and unity with each other. And we further noted that even very diverse groups like Jews and Gentiles back then can now have peace as we rally around around Jesus, rally around his word, the Bible, and rally around our shared love for each other. That's clearly the first part of this potent and powerful verse. But today, I want us to focus on the second half of this passage where it says he has broken down or broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And the question I have for you is, what wall? <laughs> and, and, and what's this barrier being talked about? And how does that work? And to clearly understand this, gang, we need to get into the world and mindset of the original first century audience. Because I'm here to tell you today that when they first read these words 2,000 years ago, something came to mind for them. They, they understood something that you and I don't understand right away. And that is this, that the author back then was referring to an actual physical wall that existed in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem at that time. He's referring to that wall. They would have got that. While at the same time, he, he is also drawing a figurative parallel to the new body of Christ, the church, and figurative walls that we need to break down amongst us today and even back then. So there's a physical wall that he's using to portray a figurative wall. Let me show you what I mean. I put up here on a board, our whiteboard, a very, very crude drawing of the first century temple, Jewish temple, that would have existed in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. For those of you who know your Jewish history, it's really crude. I've left some things out. Don't send me emails. I know that you know your Jewish history, uh, but I want to just portray for you, because you'll see it visually here in just a second, what they had in their mind back then when he talked about the dividing wall. Uh, the temple back then was where people communed with God. It was where the Israelites had access to God. The innermost part of the temple was what was called the Holy of Holies. It was a room that was only entered into once a year by only one person, the high priest, to atone for the sins of Israel. Very special place, the Holy of Holies. There was a curtain uh, between that and the next place called the Holy Place, where there was an altar and, and a the holy place they would have regular sacrifices for the sins of Israel in that place and then outside of that there was 12 steps here was the hall of priests and then the hall of the Israelites. So the holy, holy, holies, holy place, hall of priests, hall of Israelites. And then you got to the outer court. I know it's going to sound sexist. It kind of was back then. It was called the court of women because only women were allowed in the outer court back then. They couldn't go any further into the temple. And then, and this is what the wall's referring to in Ephesians here, there was a big wall right here that completed the temple with a gate on it and outside this wall was what was called the outermost court now watch this also called the court of the gentiles 
And so if you were not Jewish and you wanted access to God, you could only observe from this outermost court, you were forbidden from going inside the temple because you were not Jewish. That's the dividing wall. And this was so serious that there was written an inscription. We have records of this, an inscription on this wall, both in Greek and Latin, that said this. It said, give me a click here, no one of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. <laughs> Wow, like the ultimate no trespassing sign, right? Here in the temple. And so this is what they would have had in mind when they read Ephesians 2 verse 14. This literal dividing wall is what the author is referring to, a barrier that kept the Gentiles, all non-Jews, from participating in access to God and even having like-minded fellowship with the Jews who had access to God. So if you have an English Standard Version or a New International Version, they translate this passage a little differently than the one I use. They call it the dividing wall of hostility. It's actually not a bad translation because it was hostile. It kept people from God, this wall. It kept certainly all Gentiles and non-Jews from access to God and fellowship with God's people. It's the barrier of the dividing wall. They would have got that. Now, that's just the setup, however. That's just the precursor. For don't miss that our verse here is obviously using this, this real and literal wall in a figurative sense now that Jesus had come. In other words, the author is saying that in Jesus, all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, now have access to God through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, as well as they have complete unity with each other, now a part of his body, the church. So no more dividing wall, no more barrier. It's been broken down. Jesus has now opened up access for any and all to come to know God through him, as well as opened up access for all to have unity with each other around the cross. That's why it says in the first half of our verse, both groups became one. Because literally this wall was torn down and now unity could be the name of the game. Folks, I gotta tell you, this is one of the most powerful and poignant truths to ever hit humankind. That we now have vertical access to God, anybody and everybody, through Jesus, through faith and faith alone in Jesus, as well as horizontal oneness through our shared faith and love for Jesus and each other. And what you need to know is that when these words were read, 2,000 years ago, it rocked the first century world. It really did. I mean, the Jews either felt scandalized and offended or excited and hopeful. They were split down the middle. The Gentiles, the Greeks and Romans of Jesus' day either felt excited or some of them were like, nah, this is too good to be true. 
Just like today when you have really good news that you give to somebody, people are split on it. And for those who did receive it, the New Testament church, the whole rest of the New Testament is how they would now work out this unity, how they would go on to express it now that the dividing wall was torn down. And I'm going to warn you right now, I kind of hinted to this earlier, it's one thing to say that we have unity, it's another thing to work it out in everyday life, amen? It really is. It's like marriage. It's one thing to say you're married. That just sounds wonderful. You had a nice wedding. It's another thing to spend the rest of your life with an individual person and work through all the ins and outs of life together. And the church with unity is no different. That everybody I mentioned this series to go, oh, you're talking on unity. That's wonderful. Until we get to this message where we talk about how we need to express our unity. And what you need to know is that they struggled with it back then as well. In our time remaining, I want to share with you four ways that the New Testament church would go on to express their unity. Four ways, and I'm sure there's more, that the original players sought to tangibly reveal that the barrier of the dividing wall was truly broken down. Four barriers that they went on to break down in their practice now that their unity was in Jesus. And these are four ways that have everything to do with you and me today and our unity because the struggle still continues. And I'm going to walk you through the first of these four ways, or the first three of these four ways rather quickly, because as you're going to see, this fourth one is very timely for where we are as a church and for some decisions that our elders have made that I think you're going to find very encouraging for the future of our church. So we're going to go more quickly through these first three, but make no mistake, they're very, very important. We do talk about them all the time here. We will continue to. But for today's purposes, we got to get on to the fourth one. So here we go. The first way that we express our unity that they did back then is through being interdenominational. Interdenominational. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, that word ain't in the Bible, Jamie. Uh, they didn't have denominations back then, Jamie. What are you trying to pull on us? Well, it's the best word to describe what I mean by this. You're right. They didn't have denominations back then. But what they did have is two very different religious groups coming together. And as these groups came together, they brought a lot of faith baggage into this new church. That's what I call it, faith baggage. So picture this. You got the Jewish people on the one hand here with their whole history of Judaism. And then over here, you got the, the Gentiles, mainly made up of Greeks and Romans, their whole system of religion. And now they're meeting in the middle since they believe in Jesus. And, and guys, you won't have any trouble picturing this. Both groups are, are pictured with a wagon, a wagon load of faith baggage that they brought into this new and burgeoning church following Jesus. The Jews had a ton of stuff. Circumcision became a big issue. The feasts and then the holy days became a big issue. Uh, the laws that many of them held dear. How, how do these apply now that this new church is following Jesus? And the Greeks and Romans, who obviously didn't have, you know, the kind of religion the Jews did because God was very involved in the Jewish religion, not over here. They still had religious things, however, that they dragged into it. Things like, do we eat meat sacrificed to idols? That doesn't seem like, be a really big deal and you know those idols aren't really real so I guess it's okay to eat it but that became problematic here 
And, and so what they had to do was work these things out as they strove to have unity with each other. There's a great account in Acts chapter 15, um, many of you have read about it before, where this all came to a head, where Paul and Barnabas are out on the mission field and there are some, some uh, Jewish believers from Judea that came down and were teaching Paul and Barnabas' churches that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. That in order to be a Christian, you had to do this. I know it's hard to picture a Christian adding rules to their faith in order to be saved, but just go with me on it. They were doing that back then. And, and, and it was so strong that it says early on in Acts 15 that it created great dissension among the church. So they decided to go up to Jerusalem where, where uh, James and John were leading kind of the, the, all the Christian churches from, and they asked them their opinion. And it's interesting what James said about this, because James finally said after a lot of debate, here's what I think we should do. These are the actual words of James in verse 19. He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, meaning they don't have to be circumcised, but that we write to them that they should abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. <laughs> kind of an interesting list, don't you think? But given the context back then, with all the Jewish faith issues going on, as well as the Greek-Roman things, don't miss what James was trying to do. He was trying to find some common ground, some compromise. I'm going to suggest to you in a minute here that unity always involves give and take. Any of you that have had unity with a friend, an HOA in your community, a marriage, whatever it might be, knows that it takes give and take. That's what James is doing here. He's saying that we're not going to circumcise them, that's going too far, but we're going to ask them to, to, to adopt some of these Jewish traditions in order to be a part of this body. It's interesting, this would even change as time went on. Paul the Apostle would come along and he'd, he'd say, you know, when it comes to this eating food sacrificed to idols, why don't we let the conscience be the guide and yet honor the weaker brother? He actually changed the rules. Because again, they're trying to find their unity all with the goal of, of, of being interdenominational, of honoring our spiritual pasts, but also coming together as one body and not disunifying over these things. You know, I'm actually very proud of Scottsdale Bible here. We're a non-denominational church or maybe what you might call an interdenominational church. When people asked me to describe the church I pastor years ago, it hit me. I said, I said to somebody, well, you know, at the end of the day, we're all a bunch of, a bunch of spiritual mutts at Scottsdale Bible Church. We're all a bunch of a spiritual mixed breeds. And he, he, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, last I looked, we have like 25 different denominations represented here at Scottsdale Bible Church, at least. I meet people who came out of a charismatic Pentecostal background, a Presbyterian background, a Catholic background. People come from all different places, but, but we've all come to Jesus in our own way. And we rally around Jesus and his word we truly are interdenominational in the way that we function. And sometimes it creates problems. Uh, Bob Drew is our, our, one of our small group pastors, and he would tell you that we get calls every week from somebody saying, hey, this was taught at our small group, and this was taught at our small group, and what about this, and all that. And we gotta work through the issues just like they did back then. But by and large, we realize that unity needs to be hard won through give and take, and we rally around Jesus. 
Now, with that said, notice a second way that they had to express their unity back then that is likewise very much in play today, especially in our city, and that is through socioeconomic inclusivity. Socioeconomic inclusivity. In other words, they had to make sure that the church back then included any and all, no matter what socioeconomic place a person came from. To put it bluntly, the church decided from day one to not be a respecter of persons, but to consider everybody equal, no matter what strata of society you came from, no matter how much money you had or didn't have, everybody is equal in Jesus, and we even cared for those in need. That was the church from day one. In the book of Acts, when the church was born, it gives a brief four or five verse description of what they did on the day of Pentecost as 3,000 believers came into the fold. And this is what it says. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which most likely means communion, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. I don't know about you, but it sure sounds like they were inclusive of all people. And though this is for another sermon, the point here is not the communal sharing that they did back then. That's not the point. The point is, is, point is, is that they were voluntarily generous with their resources to make sure that anybody in the fold had their needs met because they were all one body in Jesus. And folks, that's exactly how we need to express our unity today. In a town like Scottsdale, that's a great challenge. This is obviously a wealthier town than most. And one of the things I'm proud of of our church, we're gonna talk more about this in the coming weeks and months, is how generous many of you are, even through this pandemic. I get reports every week on what people give and what our church gives to the community in all corners of our society. In fact, we gotta start, I said recently, we gotta start reporting this to our people because they don't know how much of your giving and tithe money and stuff goes toward helping those in need because we're so radically committed to that. We're gonna start telling you more and more about that. You're very generous and we feel very serious about passing that generosity on. But the one challenge we have, and I'm not gonna harp on this today, but I think all of you know this, is that if I do ever get any negative feedback about our church, I do get people who say that they come here to this church and they sometimes feel like there might be some exclusivity here, that they don't feel as welcome in this place, that they feel like there's a lot of clicks and even an attitude sometimes here that's not embracive of all people. And I'm telling you, that breaks God's heart. Our great challenge is to make sure that no matter who comes to our church, that they are considered a full part of our church, loved and equal, no matter where they might come from. It's a vision that God has for us. And I'm glad you clap at that. 
because our unity depends on this. So just to review real quickly, you got interdenominational, we got socioeconomic inclusivity. The third one will not surprise you. It's what they had to contend with back then. We have to contend with it today. And that is that unity is expressed through being multicultural, through being multicultural. In other words, this is obvious. As they brought Jews that had their own ethnic culture and Gentiles, Greeks and Romans, who had their own ethnic culture together, people who had racial and religious differences, they had to choose unity over disunity and division. And what you need to know is that they protected this strongly. They were not afraid to deal with the difficult issues when it came to bringing different races and different ethnicities together in that first century context. Because though it's for a whole nother teaching time, some of you know this because you know your history, the difference between an ethnic Jew in the first century and the Greeks who had dominated since Alexander and now the Romans who were dominating, that the differences were vast. And now Jesus had come along and they're all in one church. <laughs> How do you work that thing out? In the book of Acts, there was a dust up in Acts chapter six where you had this group of, of Hebrew widows, Jewish widows, and, and then it called them the Hellenistic widows, which would have been Greek widows. And they're all now part of this church. And the Hellenistic widows were saying, hey, wait a second, you guys are prioritizing with the handing out of these resources, because again, they were all in need. You're prioritizing the Jewish wid widows. And, and you're doing that because they're Jewish and you care more about that race than you do than you do our race. That was the accusation. And obviously that created some real disunity. And so the apostles in verse three of Acts chapter six did something very interesting. The apostles are speaking here and they say, therefore, brethren, we want you to select from among you seven men of good reputation who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Fascinating, this is the start of what we would call the deacons. You've heard of deacons in a church. These were the deacons, the original deacons. And, and these were the ones who were selected to deal with that dispute between the Jewish widows and the Greek widows. And what's fascinating about this passage is that it never tells us what they did. It never tells us how they solved the problem. All it tells us is that these men that they chose were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And then we don't hear anything else about it. So we assume they dealt with it rightly. They dealt with it justly. They would have rooted out where the injustice was and provided justice for those who are in need, which is exactly what the church needs to do because that's how you find unity. You're not afraid to call a spade a spade. You're not afraid to be honest about what's happening in your ranks and deal with it. That's what they did back then. That's what we got to do today. And so as I talk to you guys from time to time about racism and other things going on in our culture that I think affects our church, I need you to be open. And when I talked about this at the end of June, I was a little dismayed, not, not enough, but I was a little dismayed that I got emails and comments from people that were just so defensive and all I asked you to do was to search your heart to see if there was a little bit of Jonah in you when it came to your attitude toward those not like you because our culture is hurting on this level. Man, I expect the church to rise up here, amen? I expect us to be honest about what's going on. It's okay and yet to address it and deal with it because we are bringing different cultures together within the same body. And our vision is to do that even more so as we move on at Scottsdale Bible Church. 
So let me wrap up because we're going to accelerate right now into the thing that, that we really need to talk about today. Uh, we are interdenominational as we express our unity. We are socioeconomic inclusive as we express our unity. We are multicultural, not afraid to address that as we express our unity. And then finally, a very relevant thing for the next season of ministry here at SBC, they expressed their unity back then by being intergenerational. Fascinating. By being intergenerational. During COVID, I spent a lot more time reading and writing. And uh, one of the passages I happened to just read in my quiet time one day was 1 Timothy 5 verses 1 through 4. And though the content is very different than what I noticed I noticed something about this passage that, that got me thinking about our church and where we're at and this whole idea of intergenerational ministry. Let me read the passage for you. You'll start to pick up on it. Paul's writing to Timothy, and Timothy's leading all these different churches there, and Paul's writing about how you can best lead these churches, and he says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, putting aside the, the encouragement that he gives here on how to handle all these different generations, what hit me was how Paul just assumed that in every one of these churches, there was going to be all these generations, that's why I put it in yellow here, and that they'd be interacting together. Give me a head now that y'all see that. In other words, he says older men and younger men and fathers and brothers and older women and younger women and mothers and sisters. And then you got widows and children and grandchildren and you got households and parents. Did he miss anything? <laughs> I mean, he's mentioning all these different generations and he's assuming that they're in one church together and that there's kind of mayhem because of it. And he's given Timothy some instructions on how to deal with this. And the point is that the New Testament church expressed its unity. It showed its oneness to an onlooking world by honoring the entire family unit and functioning intergenerationally as it did its business. That's why Paul could address all these different generations because they were all together functioning in the same church together intergenerationally. And the reason that this is so important to note as you and I talk about unity today, especially here at our church, now don't miss this, is because the average large church in America today has completely missed this. The average large church in America is at best multi-generational, I'll define that in just a second, or most likely uni-generational, meaning they've just targeted one generation. I actually hear it at conferences when I go there. I, people will say, well, our, our church is really big and we targeted years ago a 35-year-old male and, and that's who we got, you know, because we figured if we got that generation, then the others would follow. No, really what you got was one generation because <laughs> that's what you targeted and, and, and maybe a few from their family, but you know, you hit what you aim for and that's what you aimed for. So a lot of large churches are very unigenerational, which isn't bad, it's just, it's not that. Or like us, they are multi-generational. 
We've been around long enough that we have multiple generations in our church. Here's the difference, though, between multi-generational and intergenerational. And again, we're taught this almost at the, at the conferences and seminary. It's not my fault. It's not Daryl's fault. It's just that we're told to keep the peace. Make sure that you put the seniors over there. And make sure you put the youth over there. And make sure you put those who like this kind of music over there. And those who like this kind of music over there. Oh, and you got singles, put the singles over there. In other words, we start ministries that cater to all the different generations. And really the twain never meet. I actually had one you know, nationwide church leader years ago tell me that, that church should be like going to the mall where you drive to the mall in the same car, but then you split up and the kids go to the game store and dad goes to Radio Shack and mom goes to Lord and Taylor or whatever it is. And then you all meet at the, at the food court afterward and show what you bought. He said, that's the way church should be. And, and it didn't feel right back then to me, but it's been a lot of the history of our church for good or for bad. When I got here 13 years ago for about seven years, so it was almost 20 years ago, Scottsdale Bible Church uh, began a journey to be a strong multi-generational church. We realized we had multiple generations, so we began parceling out very gr various groups based on age and preferences. So I, I remember when I first came here, uh, all the young families in our church were meeting on Sunday evening. <laughs> And they had two services on Sunday evening and the youth ministries on Sunday evening and they were contemporary worship services. And I remember asking, like, why are they meeting on Sunday evening? And the answer was, well, you see, you know, we didn't want to disrupt Sunday morning and that's a different generation and they're younger and da, da, da. And so we kind of want to keep things copacetic. So we started down there. And I remember thinking, well, I don't think that's a good idea. You're not going to grow a church that way. So in all of my lack of courage, I decided in 2010 to bring them to Sunday morning, but I dared not bring them in this room. So I started another service called The Venue 10 years ago. And I said, let's put them over there. <laughs> and, and that thing has grown and it's young families and it's two services and, and, and it's the future of our church and it's wonderful. But we've kind of kept that separate from here. Then we started a Saturday night service and that tends to be younger demographic as well. And we did that at Cactus and Northridge and, and you see what we're doing. Then we started Chapel. And again, we had good intentions with all of this. This is not sinful or wrong. Uh, part of it was where the church was at at the time and cultural expedience. It's just that what you're hearing today is that it's not the biblical ideal. It's not. I, I believe that God has better and more for us as a church, especially as we look to move on as many of us are getting older and looking to do a generational handoff in the future. You see, as our church has grown and matured over the years, folks, and as we took some time during this pandemic to slow down, I slowed way down, and seek God and pray for his leading for our church at this time, we have developed a stronger vision for expressing our unity intergenerationally. And this is what we're unveiling today, as well as some of the strategy. Here's our vision. I think you're gonna like this. Our vision, and this has been approved by every elder and all of our pastors, our vision is to develop a more intergenerational approach to ministry at SBC in order to foster a long-term generational handoff that will ensure sustainable and fruitful ministry. I know that's a mouthful, but just digest this. Yeah, you can clap for that. Just digest this. 
Notice the key here, more intergenerational. We're not gonna go crazy. Some of you are going, he's gonna bring wholesale changes to the church. No, I did that 10 years ago. I almost got run out of town. We're not doing that now. What we're gonna do is start planning now for more intergenerational ministry. You'll hear some of the changes we're making in just a second in order to foster, now this is really important, a long-term generational handoff that will ensure, should the Lord tarry, the successful, fruitful ministry of Scottsdale Bible. And some of you are going, wait, 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 what's that long-term generational handoff? I want to be careful how I share this because I could be grossly misunderstood, and I don't want to be. I trust you guys are mature enough to, to receive what I'm about to say. I am going to be 57 years old in January. <laughs> I've been in ministry all my adult life. I, I'm called to do nothing else. But I will tell you that ministry is fatiguing, and the older you get, the harder it is to keep up with it. In fact, I've joked for years with my wife that I think being in the ministry has shaved about 10 years off my life. So if God had me at 85, I'm going home at 75. I mean, it, it, it's not easy leading a church. I love it. I'm called to it. I would do nothing else. But most pastors, by the time they hit 60, 65, really about 65, start getting this from their church. And I love it. I love the way you guys do things. You're so nice. By the time I'm going to be about 60 to 62, you watch, people are going to come up to me and they're going to put my arm around me. They're going to say, Jamie, you know we love you, right? And I'm going to say, yeah, I know you love me, but I know you're getting somewhere with this. And you know that we really have appreciated your, your two decades of ministry with us, right? Yeah, yeah, I know you appreciate me. And then they say, we're just wondering, what do you think God has for you next? <laughs> Which is a nice way of saying, you know, our, our church is getting older and you're getting older. And by the way, studies do show that, that the average good senior pastor of a church attracts people plus or minus 10 years his or her age. It just makes sense. You tend to attract people close to your demographic. And, and so it's natural that in the next five to 10 years, many of us are going to ask if we haven't already, what's next? I've been asking this already. It's why we've gone on a blitz over the last three or four years, hiring a lot of young pastors. Out of our 45 pastors, half of them are in their 20s and 30s. And the reason is, is because we have to stay young. And yet it's really hard to do that. Most churches age and they never realize it till it's too late. And so this whole idea of intergenerational ministry is really important to me because maybe this will convince you. There's only one or two ways to do what I'm suggesting in the next 10 years. We can do what most large churches do. And I, and I get phone calls almost every week because they're in panic mode from pastors who are 65, pastoring a really large church. And they say, Jamie, um, you know, here's what we're doing. I, I'm 65, I'm really ready to, to retire. It's been long, uh, you know, shaved 10 years off my life, things like that, and, and what have you. And, and they say, um, you know, so, so we got some younger leaders and they're already to take over. So we're gonna pull them up on the stage this weekend and we're gonna hand them the keys and say, may God be with you, good luck. <laughs> That's what they do. That's what they did to me 13 years ago. In fact, I don't know if you guys remember, but when I was 43 and I came here, they, they brought me up on the stage. I kid you not, I have it in my office. They gave me a sword. I thought it was the sword of the spirit. I've used it other ways since then. I mean, they're just like, good luck. I mean, have at it. You know, and I mean, that, that's the way they did it. No preparation, no, no transition. And you see, I don't want to do that to the next generation. Do you? I don't want to do that. What I'd rather do is let's start now with some incremental things that we can all adjust with give and take to start bringing the generations together. And then let's work with these young pastors who are so 
gifted, who are so good. You guys know that. And let's start to, to work with them and, and, and let's do a, a handoff that, that takes some time to it. And as we do that, let's see if God is not honored and the church is more prepared. That's what we're looking to do. So what are we going to do right now? Again, the key to our vision right now, and I can't say this strong enough, is more intergenerational. We're not going nuts. We're not making wholesale changes. We have some time. But to make modest, incremental adjustments in our strategy that will begin to bring some generations together. So our elders have been meeting on this all summer. We voted in June and we voted again last Thursday night just to make sure that this is the way God is leading us. And they are unified, unanimous on at least three things that we're gonna start implementing right away. The first, and you've already felt this, is that we're combining the Shea venue and the Shea Worship Center congregations on Sunday mornings. You've sensed that because over the last two weekends as we've opened up for physical gatherings, you know that we have the venue in here. That's gonna become now for the next season of ministry here at our church. Our venue are a lot of younger families and venue, we desperately need you. Beautiful thing too about this is, is that during COVID, COVID really presented this opportunity. I don't know if you noticed, but when we've been online every week, we've just brought all of our worship leaders up here. And they've led you in a form of worship that every one of you have loved. And so today you had Ethan, who's the worship leader in here, and you had Allie. And it was a wonderful mix of generations. And then you had Neil, who's the campus pastor in here, and then Rustin doing the announcements. Again, a wonderful mix. And so this is our first step to becoming more intergenerational as we set the table for the future. And we can't be more excited about this. The second thing we're going to do is pull Saturday p.m., the congregations on Saturday p.m. at North cactus and here to Sunday morning on all campuses. And I know this will be hard for some of you who love Saturday night, but here's what you need to hear. And please hear this from me to you. I, we need you. We're not trying to move your cheese. We're not trying to mess with your life. What we're trying to do is to say to you, we need you to help us be more intergenerational. And for this next season, the way that that will work is to have you join us on Sunday morning all together at Northridge, at Cactus, and here. And so it's part of the plan that we need you on Sunday morning. So combine Shea Worship Center this, some people said, well, you don't have enough space for all of that. Good point. So here's what we're doing in two weeks. And that is we're going to add additional Sunday a.m. worship service times at all campuses. In other words, we're going from two on Sunday morning to three. So starting the weekend after Labor Day, just two weeks from this weekend, our Sunday worship services on all three campuses will be at 8, 9.45, and 11.30. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if everybody shows up at 11.30, we're in trouble. So I need some of you to ask God what service he wants to go to. And if he says eight, listen to him. Amen. <laughs> because we got to balance things out on this. Uh, and some of you are in overflow today because again, with COVID, we, we, we needed to, 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 to have overflow. I think when we go to three services, we got enough space, but not if everybody comes at 945. You're the 11 o'clock crowd. <laughs> you got to laugh at this. 
you guys come in at 1130, you're going to change anything. You don't show up till 1115 anyways. <laughs> I noticed that. And, and so by you guys just coming at your regular time, you will come about 10 or 15 minutes early to church and you'll realize that we have these things called songs that we sing before the sermon. And you're going to get to worship with us. It's going to be great. So I don't think this is a huge divergence from what we're doing, but we need all of you to work with us on this. There are going to be other things that we do as well. We're going to be increasing our multi-site expansion. We're already talking to a church east of here and a church west of here about whether they would be interested in smaller churches and merging with us and allowing an expansion campus. We're going to do more of those smaller ones in order, again, to to have intimate spots for people to be together. Again, intergenerationally, we are increasing our online presence. We know that some of you aren't going to come back uh, to physical gathering at least till there's a, a vaccine, if not longer. And so just the last couple of weeks, we promoted one of our pastors here to his only job is to pastor online people. And so we are committed to the online uh, people and we want to continue to work with them and pastor them. And then for those of you who are saying, well, it sounds like you're getting rid of the choir and orchestra. No, we're not. We've had to pause the choir and orchestra for at least this season, if not till, you know, middle or fall of next year because they are super spreaders and we've just chosen not to participate in that. But our vision is, now watch this, is that as we get more intergenerational, Uh, in in our settings here, we envision an intergenerational choir. But one, yeah, you gotta clap at that. You you really do. Some of you aren't clapping because you're thinking, well, what's that about? Here's what you need to understand. Young people do like choirs. It's just that they don't like old style choirs. And I don't blame them. But if you watch like other churches, like the famous Brooklyn Tabernacle, or if you watch AGT, America's Got Talent, young people love choirs. It's just that we need to make the shift in our church to have a choir that involves younger folks. And Derek and his team are, have a real vision to do that. So don't let anybody tell you that we're getting rid of the choir or something silly like that. It's just that we are going to go intergenerational. Now, somebody asked me uh, the other day, what about the chapel? Let's not get crazy, shall we? I, I, I mean, we, I said we're getting more generational, right? I, I mean, the chapel, you dear folks have put up with so much from me for 13 years. We're not going to mess with them right now. They, they, they've served like crazy. The chapel has gone through change after change after change. The elders strongly feel led that we're going to keep our chapel as it is right now as a thank you to our seniors. But we are going to go to three services the chapel. They'll join us in our new times. And so if some of you might not like what we're going to be doing in this room here, then, hey, I got good news. We got a chapel for you next door. And we do want to also do some things to be more intergenerational with our seniors and with our chapel as well, because we're not giving up on that vision. Here's the key. This is going to be for the next season. Somebody asked me the other day, well, are we going to, you know, ever have a Saturday night service again? I don't know, maybe. Are we ever going to use that venue room again? I don't know, maybe. Again, I think biblically and philosophically, this is a strategy. (laughs) Strategies come and go and they change. This is for the next season. So, you know, if it's not to your liking, just hang in there. This is your church. And yet I do need, we need all of you to get behind this. Again, unity involves give and take. We see that all over the Bible. 
Some of you are going to have your service location and time adjusted. Some of you are going to be welcoming new people to your worship time and service. All of us are going to have our times adjusted. Some of you might be tapped to help start a multi-site. We truly believe that this is the Lord's leading and is good and right for SBC. The timing couldn't be better. It's the gift of COVID, if you will, because we have lower physical attendance. We've had to pause choir and orchestra. We have combined worship leadership. We have stronger online presence. This is what we believe God is calling us to do. As we head to the communion table, we're gonna do something a little bit different today. We're gonna all do communion together. In just a minute, I'm gonna pray to get your heart ready for communion. And uh, as we head to the table, we're gonna keep Northridge, Cactus, and Chapel with us, as well as all of you online with us. And we're all gonna partake together in communion. As we go to the table, I cannot tell you how excited I am for the future of our church. I, I, I've never been more hopeful and more anticipatory about Scottsdale Bible Church than I am right now. People said to me in the early days here, you know, our best days are ahead of us. <laughs> and it was so stressful for me that I, I never said this verbally, but I'd walk away going, I don't think so. I, I, it, it, I have trouble seeing that. And I was wrong. Many good days have come. In the last five years, God has blessed us tremendously as a church. And we've had some real smooth waters. And we're not stirring the waters unnecessarily. We're just so hopeful that we can do this right, that we can do this in a way that honors the next generation, honors God, and we feel that this is his leading. I, I just trust and hope that you join us in this. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the church. I've never been more in love with Jesus and his church than I am right now. And God, I pray that as we uh, gather together around these, these elements right now, that God, you would do nothing but continue to unify us. As we learned last week, God, unify us in Jesus, his truth, and our shared love. That's the glue. And Lord, as we embark now to express our unity even more to a world that so desperately needs Jesus, our unity through being interdenominational, through being socioeconomic inclusive, through being multicultural, and Lord, intergenerational. God, I pray you would bind Satan. May his ploys and his whispers have no effect. May we only hear you. May we follow you with courage. And may you bless us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.